My name is Michael Ventura, and once upon a time, way before cell phones, there was such a thing as the long-distance call. A payphone or a home phone were your only choices, and both were landlines. And you dialed O for operator, and a person answered. A woman, always a woman, because jobs were regulated in those days, though nobody said so. Men could do only this, and women could do only that. A real live living woman at whatever hour of the day or night would say, Operator. And you'd say, I like to place a long distance call from where you are, say Waterville, Maine, to somewhere else, say Lordsburg, New Mexico. And you might ask how much it cost, say $5 for the first three minutes, a dollar per minute thereafter. $5 in a time when that $5 was enough money to buy, say, 13 or 15 quarts of milk or packs of cigarettes or tickets to a movie theater. I mean, you really had to want to talk to this person in Lordsburg or Waterville or wherever. And only the rich could talk long enough for a real conversation, and the connection wasn't always very good. Okay, you got the idea. I think of this communication between us as a long-distance call, except that we can behave like rich people and talk for maybe a half an hour, a little more or less. And that's where the metaphor ends, because obviously this is me talking and you at the other end of the line. Hi. Each of our long-distance calls has a title, and this one is called, What Does a Dark Age Demand of a Good Person? At the end of one millennium and the beginning of another, I asked, what can we do? As a question that the young ask, with an urgency that we elders find increasingly disturbing. Disturbing precisely to the extent that we've come to take the question for granted. But the young must ask it, and they have no one to ask but us. And they are correct not to forgive our reluctance to answer or our stammering when we try, for they have every right to an answer from their elders. And they know that homilies and career suggestions will not suffice. They feel as if they're being shot out of a cannon into an absolutely unknown and merciless situation, and they are right. They want an answer from us that is both definite enough to give them direction and open-ended enough to give them a sense of meaningful choice, and they can't help but feel that if we cannot give them such an answer, we haven't really been paying attention to our own lives. And they are right again. Don't let their casual pop style fool you. What the best of them want is to be assigned a noble task, something that will make their lives meaningful. Nothing less will count. And they want to be assured that we, too, however humdrum our lives may seem, are laboring under a noble assignment, something more than mere survival and security, something that will connect our history with their future. For it is such a sense of purpose, and not merely our age, that makes us elders. Without such purpose, we are as weightless as they feel, and when they sense this, they despise us for it, and again, they are right. The question at this historical moment became clearest to me one night several years ago, when my boy, his hair shaved close to his head and arranged in little spikes that would have been cute if it weren't also somewhat sinister, came in way past his curfew, eyes blazing with anger and a question. But he didn't ask his question as though it was really a question. The young rarely do. 
Instead, he made a statement, an accusation, and as a demand that he be heard, he laced his disguised question with obscenities. It went something like this, and I'll have to clean it up for the broadcast. It's all effed. It's effed out there, effed. It's all shit out there. It's all pretending to be something, and it's nothing, and it's effed. Clearly, he was making me responsible for what was out there, which is just. A parent is the representative of the history that has handed you your world. And in this sense, we are responsible. There's no evading that. His declaration of eftness was a way of asking what I thought and what I was doing about it and what he should do. It would be no good telling him that it's going to be all right because he knew very well it wasn't. And it was no good telling him to get good grades and go to college and hope for the best which as a society is all we seem to say to kids. Nothing I was doing or thinking had a prayer of fixing anything out there, and he knew that too. And given the impossibility of a solution, what should he do? That was his burning question. He asked it on the couch, half boy and half man, his words on fire and his body tensely still. I answered agitated, pacing up and down, as much on fire as he, for I was being put to the test, and whether I had an ultimately useful answer or not, I was at least determined not to stammer. His inner fire meeting my inner fire, with our lives on the line. That's the millennium. It's still the millennium, or it should be. Suddenly it's my job, as is, is every elder's and parent's job, to speak for the entire human heritage. In my case, that might, that night, less to speak than to rant for the entire human heritage. It was everything I ever had to say, or still have to say, and it went something like this. It is all effed, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. Maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in yours, maybe not in your children's. Don't look now, but it's a dark age, which is one reason why so many people tell you how great things are, really are. A dark age full of shiny inventions that all just seem to make it darker, crazier, None of us know shit about what's coming next, except that whatever's coming may well be darker than what's already here. If you're asking for solutions, I don't have any. I don't know anybody who does. Compassion for one another is absolutely necessary, but that's not a solution. In fact, it's probably on a day-to-day -day level just a way of getting yourself into more trouble. The question is, what does a dark age demand of a good person? And the answer to that depends on another question. What do you love? Not what do you like or prefer or want, but what do you love? What is there in this chaos that you can love? Those things that you can love are out there and your first job is to find them. And that in itself is a dangerous task and it can be a long and excruciating one. But then what do you do? Because discovering what you love is just the beginning. That doesn't solve anything either. I mean, it doesn't solve the issue of your life. Once you find the things you can love, you got to get to know them so that you can preserve them and live them and fight for them. So you do not compromise them no matter what. You don't sell them out and you don't sell yourself out. And that too is only going to make your life harder, much. So why do it? Because the best and most dangerous task is to nurture what you love without any hope of reward, to keep what you love alive and keep the thing in you that loves alive so that you can hand on the things you love to those who come next, even if that's just one person. You give the things you love all you have and all you are because that in itself passes them down to someone, maybe someone you don't know and aren't even aware of 
because in a chaotic time, the end of which we cannot imagine, the important thing is to pass on what we love so that somebody, somebody, someday, after this great madness has played itself out, will be able to have it and use it and add it to the world. And if all that you love is the whiteness of your skin or something like that, if hate is the refuge of your love, that's not what I'm talking about, and you know it. The human heritage, homo sapiens, all of us, what you love has to belong to all of us because it already does. And maybe that calmer day isn't coming, but maybe it is. And if there's any chance at all that it is, then we can't fail that day. We have to give all we love to that day. And I'll say again that there are no material rewards for this. It's dangerous. It'll get you into trouble and screw your bank account. But it's the best job you can ever have. No matter what your profession may turn out to be, what I'm talking about is your job. And if you take on that job, every day will count. And if you don't, every day of your life will be wasted. I care about your security and your safety, but not as much as I care about your feeling that your life counts for something and making it count for something. Do you have the stuff to seek what you love and cultivate it and pass it on? And can I help with that? Because if you do that, then you will have lived. Then whether your name is remembered or not, you'll be an essential part of what's to come and your life will have counted for something. Well, like I said, it was a rant. But my feeling then and now is that when people come to a parent or artist or philosopher or therapist or teacher or priest, what they are really asking is not so much to be cured or saved as to be ennobled, to be reminded of their birthright as human beings so that they can carry their part of the human heritage in the great human procession. Those were the stakes 21 years ago when those words were printed in the Austin Chronicle in Austin, Texas. And I say these words now again because I had to be reminded of them by an old friend, a man I called Duke, formerly of the Bronx, as I am formerly of the Bronx in Brooklyn back in the day, when the days behaved a lot like the nights. And as Bruce Springsteen put it, you had to walk tall if you were going to walk at all. So to pass on what you value in the human heritage, that's my job and the job of any civilized person who can bear it and pass it on, to hand it on. You have to have a hand on it. You have to grasp it. And right now, the most important heritage we can grasp is the vote. And the most important way to celebrate what's best in our heritage is to vote and to get that rancid, racist lump of disease psyche out of the White House. Can I even express what I feel and mean at this historical moment? My job is to write, so I have to try. I come in peace, but that doesn't mean I'm not angry. I come with open, empty hands, but that doesn't mean I'm not armed. In spite of all that is dreadful in our shared histories, I come armed with what is beautiful and worthy in the human heritage. I come armed with all that people have endured so that we, all of us, can have this chance, a chance to put an end to an evil empowered in the White House, to vote it down and out. Michelle Obama put it rightly. If you don't think things can get worse, you're wrong. Things can get a lot worse and will if we don't stop him on election day, if we don't stand with what is finest in our human heritage, and as David Bowie said, be heroes just for that day. 
and vote for Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris to strive to do the job, God help them, that turns all this around. This is Michael Ventura. The podcast is Long Distance Call. Until next time, good luck out there.